Tonight's episode is brought to you by Beaten to Death, a new film from Welcome Villain. Experience the most brutal horror film of the year at home as Beaten to Death is now available on digital. Beaten to Death, the latest film from Welcome Villain, the studio that brought you Malum, unfolds after a desperate choice leads a man named Jack down a path that leaves him beaten and bruised as he struggles against man, nature, and his own sanity. Stranded in the middle of nowhere after barely surviving a horrific assault, Jack encounters one local after another and quickly learns that a sick game of cat and mouse is about to begin. Battling the deranged country psychos and the harsh landscape, Jack must go to extreme lengths to survive. This acclaimed Australian shocker pulls no punches and despite being the subject of controversy for its extreme violence, has been extremely well received by critics and fans alike. Drawing comparisons to films like Wolf Creek, Killing Ground, and more, this festival hit is sure to satisfy gore hounds and thrill seekers looking to kick off the spooky season with a bloody bang. Prepare yourself for a movie that critics are calling utterly terrifying and an intense viewing experience that will put you through the ringer. Directed by Sam Curtin and starring Thomas Roach, Beaten to Death is now on digital anywhere you rent or purchase movies online. You've been warned. Welcome to Colors of the Dark. I am your co-host, Rebecca McKendry, and with me is Elric Kane. How you doing tonight? Bonjour, Becca. I am Kenneth Branagh's accent. Oh, God. As that was so, that, that was cringy, dude. Yeah, well, that it was, was meant to be up there with Kenneth Branagh's accent, so... Oh, 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 it needs more bees. That's what it needs. Yeah, um, so, yeah, we will kick off. Man, you're just jumping right in. Yeah, I so, don't do I'll chit chat in. anymore. This is the second podcast no in two days. Is... I don't I don't need to know how you're doing. I know how this you're doing. This is my third. This is my third exactly. podcast. I did one with you. The audience might not know how you are. But oh, yeah, I know we had like are. a, you know how I am. We've we've covered this. Yeah, We're, good. Good. We're good. We're good. We're um, good. But yeah, over the last weekend, we uh, went to go see Haunting in Venice, the brand new one from Kenneth Branagh Star. And Kenneth Branagh. You know, how have you been about the prior ones? Because this is the third of this series now of the Perot. Yes, series. I have a lot to say have on you, this. Um, yeah. I, how have you been on these? Well, I started by purposely not watching either of them and never saw them. And that's how I am with them because he sounds like uh, he was doing Peter Sellers' accent in uh, Pink Panther movies. So I, I didn't, I, the first one appealed to me because I do, I like murder mysteries, but I've seen those movies, the originals, and I just was like, I don't, with a mystery. If you remake a mystery, I don't know if they're exactly the same twist. I assume they are because they're based on Agatha Christie. Uh, It's hard to get excited when you know that element of saying if you know who done it, then why remake it? So I just didn't have much interest. They change them up a little bit. A little bit. But then the second one I heard was a train wreck. And I just yeah the yeah. second one yeah I I lo- so I will watch any murder mystery yeah. um much to my fault because not all of them are good and I'm definitely the type of person that will just type in murder mystery on Amazon Prime and let fate take its course and it's not always a good thing but that said the first one a fucking dug the okay. second one I liked parts of it there was definitely like a 20 minute monologue about the history of his mustache where i was like what the fuck is ha-? i'm not kidding it's an honest to god scene in the movie um where i was like what the hell where are we now guys um so that takes us to this one okay so you have not seen the first prior to no so I'm gonna- but i've seen the like i have seen the character do those movies before mm-hmm. so that part and i do know some of the 
criticisms and, and for me, one of the reasons I stayed away was actually running time. They're so long. And when I saw the running time of this one, well, first, we obviously saw the trailer of the new one, which yes. makes it it's, it looks like a supernatural film for a long time before Perot is even introduced. And then you're like, oh, OK, so that's cool. Good setting. So that got me excited enough to want to go see this one sight unseen, which I did with you. Well, I didn't go with you, but same weekend as you. We went the same day, actually. So, yeah. Um, okay. So the setup of this one is that um, Perot has completely retired and he is hanging out in Venice. Um, he lives in this kind of luscious state by himself. He's kind of a self-imposed retirement. Like he's really just avoiding everybody. You get the idea that he's kind of drowned himself in cakes. I guess you do that. Um, and is really not associating with anybody. Isn't spending a lot of time. Well, one of his old friends who is a mystery author played by Tina Fey shows up at his doorstep and is like, look, I know you're not solving crimes anymore, but I'm invited to a seance tonight. And she specifically says, cause immediately he's like, Nope, Nope. They're all charlatans. I don't want anything to do with this. And she's like, I can't figure this one out. This seems like the real deal. Let's go do this. And suddenly his interest is peaked enough that he's like, okay, let's go. And they arrive at this amazing palazzo. And it is this ex opera star whose daughter has just recently died, um, fell from a balcony and drowned in the, the Venice channels below. And so that is who they are trying to contact. And so then they bring in Michelle Yeoh, who is playing this absolutely famous psychic and probably within a couple of minutes of him being there, Perot starts kind of getting these visions, like weird things starts happening that is supposed to kind of be our indication that there's supernatural. Plus the Palazzo has this entire back history of like kids killing people, that it was like a, an orphanage way back when, and that the kids are still all around killing people. That's right. Yeah. That's actually pretty cool. I, I, I really like the design of this movie. I think yeah. the way it looks and feels occasionally there'll be a shot type where like they literally copy a sequence that copies what you like, what Scorsese did when he put the camera on the actor, you know, in mean streets and they do it to Perot and Perot. And I'm just like, like, yeah, I don't know if this works in the setting of the time period quite so it's a little too modern, but uh, but it was it was fun and I liked the supernatural like setups to it. Obviously, you're watching a, a mystery of somebody who's probably grounded in reality, so you know where it might be going. Um, spoiler, a, there's a ghost killer, and that's who did it. The end. <laughs> so go see this movie because it's actually a ghost yeah. slasher. It is. No, this, there were parts of this that I really liked. And what I liked the most about this was the setting and the production design. Um, So much so that I felt like that was, you know, part of what Brano liked as well, because you talked about there were moments where like they would put the camera on the actor. There were other moments where they would have like cool lamp in the foreground and it would literally be like a diopter shot with the cool lamp and then a character kind of in the background, smaller, but still in focus. Um, it, like the production design was such a powerful thing to the point that you're staring at statuaries and floral sprays and wallpaper patterns and wainscoting. And usually I would kind of, you know, find issue with that in a movie. But in this one, I was like, oh, no, go back over to that corner. What was that thing? Like, it was just beautiful production design. And yeah, and it has stars, but he is obviously they went a different direction with this because it's people like, you know, Michelle Yeoh just had won the Oscar, but she still is not like a, a mega star in America. Mm. Jamie Dornan, who had just been in his previous film and has been in the Fifty Shades movies. I love Kelly Riley and a lot of the movies she's been in, but yeah. now she's famous for Yellowstone. And then Tina Fey 
it, Tina Fey's character did feel a little bit like the podcaster from Only, Only Murders. Murders in the, in the it's almost like the same storyline, basically. Um, yeah. But I think that actually helped position. Bran- I, I really liked Brandon in this, actually. I think he got a chance to play an interesting character because he was a seeing things that don't make sense to him and cha- challenging his perspective on reality while also not be having to decide whether uh, he is still on top of his craft, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so it, there, there felt like there was actually pretty good stakes. There, there was a lot to like about it. You know, again, this kind of subgenre often ends with a 20 minute recap to explain how everything breaks down. And yeah, Elric knows that was because I that's where you had an issue yeah. afterward. That's where I had an issue is usually I like for the murder mystery to kind of unfold through the entire thing instead of just a 20 minute explainer at the very end this was definitely a you know have no clue what's going on okay here's how it happened and then there's like a 20 minute explainer there are times that i like that i will watch tim curry do that in clue all day but this one it was just um yeah it definitely went more in that path that's not usually kind of the pacing that i want in murder mysteries but that said I will say this is definitely my favorite of these three so far, possibly because of the ghost, definitely because of the setting. The mood. Yeah, the mood's good. People yeah, who are the here, mood was great. you love Jalo, you love you don't look now. This, is, this has that. And it was a fun thing to see in a big screen. I, I think in the middle, I lagged a little bit. might have been late at night. I remember just getting a little uh, sleepy eyed in the middle of this movie, but it kind of bounces you back as it goes. So. I saw this, I went to the super early morning show on Friday. I saw this, it was like a 1030 show in AMC. I was one of three people in the theater. And there is something amazing about eating a giant AMC jumbo sized bucket of popcorn for breakfast. I mean, like that's a commitment. And I did that just for this movie. I had a margarita bigger than my head. And that might have been why the eyes were getting sleepy. But anyway, but I, I thought it was fun. A good big screen uh, movie to kind of kick off. In a way, it's kind of kicking back off spooky season as we get into it is. September, which is kind of fun. We Neither of us got to see The Nun 2 yet. We both really want to. And we just yeah. couldn't align. We want to see it together. So hopefully before the next show uh, and while it's still on a big screen, because I'm genuinely curious. Yeah, we'll find some time this weekend to go see it. Definitely. Okay, so I'm going to take us to one that I watched a couple of weeks ago, but the embargo just lifted so I can finally talk about it. So Deliver Us, this is a brand new one that is um, coming out soon. I believe it's doing a smaller theatrical as well, um, or at least has been. I know that it had kind of played a lot of festivals, so you're immediately going to discover why I had requested a screener copy of this weeks ago. And that is When a Nun... In a remote convent, um, suddenly becomes pregnant. The Vatican sends all of these priests out to investigate. And one of the priests is this guy who is still a priest, but you realize really quickly he's got a girlfriend. Like, he's not really kind of believing into his own hype anymore. But he's still going through the motions. Like, he still definitely likes the church. He likes what he does. And so the Vatican sends this team out to investigate. And what they decide is that this nun has kind of had this immaculate conception and she's pregnant with twins. And they immediately find this old timey scripture that says, oh, if a nun becomes immaculately conceived with twins, one is the Messiah and one will be the Antichrist. And so we should just like kill them both. And so he is immediate, like they're, they're talking about ending the pregnancy and things like that. And he is immediately like, whoa, guys, we can't do that. And so he basically um, absconds her and takes her to try to get her away from that situation. And then 
things start getting really freaky. Like at that point, you think she might just be pregnant. Like there's always that question of like, did she just hook up with one of the other priests in the church or something like that? Like, has she been lying the whole time? After he kind of steps in and is like, y'all aren't touching her, we're leaving. It starts getting real supernatural. And at that point, it's got some seriously freaky moments. Like there was some good, you know, psychological freaky moments to it. It's real slow burn. It's got like an A24 feel where it's going to be slow burn. And then it's going to have these crazy moments and then go back to slow burn. I liked the ending of it. I liked where it went a lot. So yeah, this one, it's very, you know, it's period to a degree. Um, It definitely feels like most of it is kind of taking place in this very kind of antiquated church environment. Real slow burn, but I rather enjoyed this one. Deliver us. You got Thomas Critchman in there. I don't know which character he is, but I like Thomas Critchman. He's in the new Indiana Jones as well and King Kong, a lot of things like that. Um, Okay. Yeah, I haven't even heard of this one. I mean, there's been a lot of crazy priest movies lately um consecration i spoke about a couple shows ago like we've had a couple of really tight religious horrors as of late and yeah my, um, my guess com- is russell crowe got her pregnant actually it was the pope's exorcist that, all, always blame him pope's exorcist it definitely was him he is quite the charmer so russell crowe did it uh i saw a number of uh new uh, like yeah lesser known indies that are all coming out uh one uh, that was interesting. It, it like had a lot of big visuals. It was uh, Malay- a new Malaysian horror film called Blood Flower just hit Shutter. Sam Zimmerman recommended this, said it was really good. It has a lot of visuals that I think you'll dig. It's almost like a almost too much movie at times because there's so many different things. Uh, it starts with like uh, a young you know, teenager who's like got some supernatural psychic abilities but doesn't understand them yet. Because his mom is one and his mom uh, and they're going out into this forest with the, the husband and, and his other sister and they're going to go help somebody with a demonic kind of some sort of possession kind of uh, situation. They go out there, the mom basically they're kind of trying to deny the powers in their in their son for now. And because they do that, they don't teach him. And then the mother tries to take on the steam and it ends up killing her. And so then it cuts to, you know, a few months later and the son is now, you know, in denial of his power, even though he had he known he might have been able to save her. They're in this high rise apartment complex. And it, it's kind of c- confusing. There's a guy who's kind of an asshole. And there's even like incest vibes that r- has this entire apartment where he's got all these giant flowers that he goes out into the jungle and brings back. And he's asking them to look after. He clearly runs this apartment and he is not a good guy. But the flowers are incredible. And that's probably where the blood flower of it comes and through there's a door that has a um you know one of those parchment papers on it uh and not to go in there and of course these young teenagers they knock it off they go in there and then it unleashes this crazy demon thing and what's interesting especially on this episode with the demon is uh some of the times some of the demon stuff is like cg-ish but other times they do this giant stop motion creature and it's super interesting but it's also kind of weird in the context of just the reality of this movie there's a lot going on in this movie. Uh, they then are trying to, you know, it's killing multiple people in this building. Uh, the flowers play a very interesting role at one point. Uh, it's it's pretty graphic. Uh, I saw in this movie somebody eating a baby. So that wow. added that to okay. the had not seen that image before. Uh, it has some pretty crazy stuff. So I think it didn't all come together to me necessarily as a movie, but there was a lot in it to admire and find interesting uh, on the purely, you know, uh, cool horror visuals. So I, I, you know, on Shutter, if you've got it, I do think uh, give it a watch. Uh, and again, we don't get to see too many films from Malaysia, so horror films. That's yeah, that is awesome in itself. I will always watch uh, Malaysian horror. Yeah. Okay, so that takes me to. Did you watch It Lives Inside? No, I didn't yet. I still really want to because it's coming to theaters very soon. 
Yeah. So this one has been getting relatively good reviews and I will agree with those. Like there is definitely something here. It is about um, a family, specifically a young girl who's from East India and her family has moved here. Um, Her mother is still very much culturally grounded with East Indian culture. Her dad is a little bit more kind of um, Americanized. I'll say like he's definitely embracing culture a little bit more here. She is basically rejecting it. Like the movie opens with her shaving um, dark hair off her arms because she doesn't want the dark hair on her arms anymore. She doesn't like speaking in her native tongue. She doesn't like associating herself with it. She's worried about taking um, cultural cooking to school. Like she doesn't like taking it in her lunch and things like that. Um, So she's really just trying to fit in with everybody at her school and to the point of rejecting her prior culture. Well, at the same time, another one of her friends from East India, who she had grown up with, they had been best friends when she was a kid here, has really kind of withdrawn from the school. Everybody views her as like the weird, depressed kid. She's always in dark clothes, hair down over her face. And she carries around this mason jar that looks like it's kind of filled with dirt and grime. And she tells this other girl, Sam, that there is something evil in it that she has trapped in there and that she can she can't hold it back much longer and she's scared it's going to get out and what works and of course it does get out that's like where it goes like 20 minutes not even 20 it's like the 15 minute mark the jar breaks and so then it focuses on these two girls and specifically sam as she is now kind of confronted with this supernatural monster from a culture that she is trying to really distance herself from and having to kind of go back to it to figure out what to do. There is a lot about this movie that I loved. I loved the cultural setting that it's in. I loved how it was using horror as a metaphor um, for kind of rejecting this culture and, you know, having to then go back and embrace it and realize that that's who you are and that it never goes away. There was a lot about this movie that I loved. The scares were where it fell a little flat for me. Like it just did not have quite the scary punch that I was expecting it to have looking at the trailer, but how the culture is built in, how it's perceived within the movie, the pacing, all of that stuff really worked. This one, it's in theaters now. I know it's playing at the AMCs here in LA, and I believe it is coming to VOD within the next week or two. And this is It Lives Inside. Um, imagine if um, the, uh, the Venice haunting in Venice opened the same way. Branna shaving the hair off his arm, trying to reject his French sensibilities by living in Italy. Man, that would have been so much better. What a tight opening. Tina Fey shows yeah. up with a jar being like, there's totally the something in here. Yeah. Saving the mustache. I could yeah. see it. Um, I, yeah, I do want to see that one. I'm, I'm going to see it. Yeah, I've read a few reports just saying it's hard because the, the monster isn't really visualized much. And that, that can make it yeah. tricky. So. You don't see it for much of it. And that does make it, that's probably why the horror movements just didn't, some of them did not work as well that you just, you don't see much of it. And there's a reason behind that in the movie that I won't reveal, but yeah, it made it harder to kind of grasp the horror of it because so much of it is unseen. Okay. But I I will definitely watch that. Um, The next one I saw, wow, I knew nothing about it. The words good boy just popped up and I'll only go up to a certain point and then I'll tell people spoiler and I'm going to give you one little hook to watch. I it. don't even know what this movie is. Okay, okay. no, this will be fun. Where'd you don't, watch don't look this? At, uh, I had to pay on Amazon or whatever. It's is this the one from 2000? No, no it's from now. Boys. It's from it's a new book. So it's just called Good Boy. It's from Denmark or Sweden. I think it's Sweden. Um, it is. It starts with this. Um, 
basically kind of looks American psychoish, very good looking, very suave dude wakes up and then <laughs> then his dog uh is waiting for him on the foot of his bed but his dog is a full-grown man dressed in dog costume but you never see his face you just see him dressed in dog, and it's kind of weird and he feeds him and it's just totally how you would treat a normal dog but it is a person in costume and then you follow this guy out goes out on a dating app and he goes out on the date and meets this girl and they he's he's actually kind of shy and he's a little reserved this man and talks to her and they kind of hit it off and you know, they 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 go. They're out on the state, and he's like, you know, uh, you want to come back to my place? And I do have to warn you about one thing. And then he explains, look, I live with somebody. It's uh, it's this guy, but he he lives his entire life like a dog. He never takes off his costume. You can't ever address him as a person. He lives his life fully in subservience to me, but as a dog. And she's just like, what? Like she just it, it totally, you know is beyond weird uh so she's like out of there and that's that's that and then later her friend she meets her friend and her friend knows the guy's name because he's like a local millionaire heir to like some fortune there and Layla, she's like you have to go on a second date are you crazy and she's like yeah but he had this dog and she's like are you kink shaming don't kink shaming you should just be open-minded and she's like okay so she goes to his house for dinner and he and he's like oh, you want to meet him you know and he comes in the dog comes in panting and like you know she pets it and it's just super it's one of those movies where you're watching it and going, I don't know how this is going to last 80 more minutes as a narrative, but you know, you have a few ideas maybe while you're watching it. Um, and it's interesting. The setup, it's up to there. I was pretty intrigued. It was weird. Uh, okay. Quick spoiler, because I have to give this much to give you a hook to if you were going to watch this movie. It won't be a spoiler, spoiler of the whole story, but it is enough that to me is what made me interested for the rest, but it might be more than you want to hear. So if you don't want to hear just leave 30 seconds. Uh, okay. She's hanging out with this dog and they do this for a few days and she's having this nice relationship with with her new boyfriend guy and the dog is just the dog. And then one day she walks into the room and the dog like, you know, does this little crawl towards her and it, then the mask comes off and he just goes, you have to get me out of here. I'm terrified of him. The, he's been capturing me for all the like for the last year. I, we need to. He's a psycho. And so from that moment, I was like, oh, fuck. OK, now I'm in because 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 oh, he's not no. actually his pet. He is actually a captive who is having to live like a dog. And so then I was like, all right, wherever this goes now, I'm at least interested. It, it becomes not generic, but fairly you know standard from that moment on but still kind of fun because the stakes were suddenly because i really didn't know how is this even a movie like what i'm watching how is this gonna escalate in any way unless the dog's a psycho and unless the dog's a creep uh so it was fun like on that level you know it's i thought it was actually a pretty playful uh you know simple film pretty i i got the feeling like i said the director's name on a lot of the credits so maybe it was like a very uh it doesn't feel ch- totally cheap but maybe it was like something uh very handmade so anyway good boy this- interesting flunk yeah, it's only got like five actors in it. I just watched parts of the trailer. This yeah. looks fucking terrifying because yeah. when you say guy in a dog costume, I wasn't quite picturing as horrifying yeah, as it it's actually pretty weird. is. It's weird. Okay, this looks... But it's worth to watch. I, uh, you know, it's like, it was just weird enough to be like, all right, I get what you're doing. All right, good boy. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to take us to The Unbinding, which is a brand new... I don't... I'm going to call it documentary. I've seen people online disputing this fact, but yeah, I don't know if it's a fact. I'm going to call it documentary just because that's what the descriptor provided by the filmmaker calls it. So this is now on VOD. This is from the people who made Hell Year, which I had covered. I can't remember if it was on the show or Deep Cuts. I may have covered it on Deep Cuts, but um, it is a couple 
who collect haunted props. That's kind of their thing. They have YouTube shows, they um, have a podcast themselves, and they collect haunted props. I had seen this pop up on a lot of people's feeds as, hey, this was really cool. It was kind of creepy. So I was like, okay, you know what? I'm in. Hellier was a different documentary. It focused um, on kind of a different supernatural phenomenon. And admittedly, Hellier did not gel as much with me. So I was kind of skeptical going into this. I will say I was really intrigued by the kind of premise of this, which is people send them supposedly haunted props and they're kind of realists about it where they're like, yeah, most of the stuff we get, it's nothing like, you know, it's somebody had some weird vibes off of it, but we're holding it and there's nothing there like, you know, to each his own, but they get in the mail this, they call it the crone and it is this woman statue this kind of carved woman statue with her arms bound by her side and then all these nails in her eyes and they receive it in the mail and immediately they're both like i feel something but then they start kind of documenting their journey with it it was supposedly found by hikers in the catskills Hmm. they set up cameras they swear that it's like doing weird stuff around the room and they set up cameras and it looks like it's jumping around like it's rotating and turning in place Like it was actually some footage that I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And so then they start researching where it came from, the environment. Some of it, they get some pretty trippy evidence about this particular uh, prop. And it really continues to escalate. And the, the, the people are Greg and Dana Newkirk. And they actually provide some evidence that I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting. I will say I'm definitely too much of a skeptic to go full force into films like this. But I have seen a lot of people online who absolutely were like, holy shit, that was horrifying. I I will be the first to confess that I am, I want to believe, but I have never really had a, a great supernatural or ghost experience myself. So I'm the first one who's like, show me empirical evidence or it's bunk. And so I spent the entire movie instead of like really engaging going, uh, okay, so maybe is that a trick of the light? It's probably a trick of the light. But that said, this really hit with a lot of people that I love and respect online And even I spent parts of the movie going, oh, shit, that was kind of cool. So even if you kind of do not dig ghost shows, because I am definitely not the type of person who would watch Supernatural, the paranormal research ghost shows, this was well made and there was a compelling story behind it. And it made me say, "Okay, you know what? I will stay with you for a full 90 minutes because I want to believe in your creepy weird statue. And so, yeah, this is getting good reviews online. It's got something. I think that it's going to hit you a little bit more if you are a little bit more open to the supernatural stuff. I need my experience. I need the time that I'm like, holy shit, something happened and it feels bigger than me and I can't explain it. I'm waiting for that. I want to believe y'all is what I'm saying. This documentary was pretty cool, even if you don't. The Unbinding. Yeah, I almost watched that. I I just knew nothing about it. I saw just some pretty good reviews online and I didn't really, yeah. I didn't know what it was. They were citing these shows that I'd never heard of. I'm not into like paranormal ghost shows but i maybe believe a little more than you do uh you do because you something creepy shit a little bit but mostly it's just the fact that my mom had something like that happened to me and she's like a total skeptic so when somebody skeptical tells you something and they're like there's absolutely no other way to explain it then i'm always that made me a bit of a believer as a young kid you know hearing her stories so 
So I don't know. I, I'm somewhere in between. But of course, we all want to believe something that there's something. Yes, out there, so. I deeply do. So yeah, but this this was a cool even if you're non believer like me, even if you spend the entire documentary going, Oh, wait, was that just the light? Was that like what like your air conditioner caught on and that made it move slightly? Um, there's still something fascinating. And it's much better filming than their prior doc hell year like the they they got much better like cinematography and filmmaking skills along the way so it was very technically competent as well that's i hope somebody sends us haunted objects we never I, want haunted a, I want a haunted object i haven't had one I, yet. we want a haunted swag bag people send us swag bags for movies but we want a haunted <laughs> swag bag so um all right uh i saw a movie that was interesting somebody sent a screener uh, for a new movie or like one of these emails saying would you like to see screener i never respond to these usually and this time i was like i don't know what this movie is so i'm gonna say yes to a movie called night siren uh which is coming out soon um directed by Teresa novotova novotova from slovakia or Ch- and slash czech republic uh this i think was interesting it's a little less it's it's played up as a folk horror um, and it has a folk horror setting and it is about folk horror beliefs more than it is a horror film. It is a young woman's return to this uh, this native mountain village that you see a flashback to when she was a young girl. She was running away from an abusive mother and she accidentally knocks her little sister off a cliff and leaves town forever after that because she feels so terrible and hasn't returned till now, believing she's killed her sister. And she comes back now in her 20s and everyone's saying, you can't go to that hut. It's it's owned by the witch and everyone in this town. It's a modern town. That's the interesting thing. It's a modern set story that has people who are still because they're in this mountainous area still believing in a lot of folk tales and their beliefs are just kind of, you know, still a little backwards in that way. And so it starts charting their fears. And what you quickly realize is all these fears, they're really just there to reinforce misogyny and to, you know, because there's a one day a week, one day a year where all the men squirt all the women in the town with water guns and hit them on the bum with like brooms. And you're just watching it going, what? what? Yeah, that's a ritual. Okay. Yeah, yeah this is okay. one of the rituals, and so you and you start to realize, oh, okay, so the belief that there is this bad witch out there is just there to help reinforce the power structures of the town and their beliefs. And uh, there's this other young, younger woman there who's a little bit more edgy and punk and cool and open minded, and they have this friendship, but people start viewing them. Are they? kind of witches or are they a reincarnation of the bad witch who was there and so the town starts to act against them so it's much more of like a becomes a bit more of a hostile violent drama with some but but very much rooted in a folk horror setting but not really ever going into that uh the real thing it's definitely more realistic take i thought the acting performances directing style all of that was very strong you know sometimes i prefer something that does go full supernatural in in this Mm -hmm. kind of movie to to be satisfying but i thought it was actually pretty interesting so no those interesting yeah with a name like night siren does this go aquatic horror at some point it doesn't yeah they don't touch water here at all really i mean there's yeah there's like there's a lake a little lake but it's not really part of it i think it's more just somebody calling out in the night you know um but but it's it was an interesting drama again sometimes it's fun to, it's the type of film you would have probably discovered at a festival you know farm festival but um solid and plus i haven't seen many not since the 60s i i don't see many czech movie you know check yeah. check new wave had this incredible like eight ten year run and then it's just you know a lot of those directors immigrated to america and you don't really see movies made there so much anymore yeah um 
Okay, before I jump to what was my favorite film of the week and a couple of quick book recs, I want to just quickly mention that I I was going to cover this on deep cuts, but it's not a deep cut. And I was like totally into the history of it because I'd never sat down and read everything. I watched Cursed on Paramount Plus. And this is Wes Craven's film um, from 2005, but it was supposed to be 2003. And what I had infamously known about this movie is that Craven lost it. Like he started shooting it. Weinstein stepped in, said that they did not like the way that the movie was coming out. He ended up having to do four different sets of reshoots. And basically he lost control of the entire latter half of the movie. And so I had seen this back in 2005 and not knowing any of the story, you know, it's kind of a tonal mess. And then you kind of, it wasn't until much, much later that I had learned this. And then when I saw it pop up on Paramount Plus this week, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to watch this. I want to try to see if I can um, see where the prior film was and then where they reshot. The part that I found most upsetting on this, well, two things that I found most upsetting once I started researching everything is Skeet Ulrich was apparently one of the major characters in the movie and Weinsteins did not like him. And so they cut his entire character out and then apparently brought in Joshua Jackson and completely rewrote the plot within that. But the one that I consider the biggest transgression is apparently there was all of this um, werewolf stuff done by Rick Baker and it was actual practical werewolf effects. Same guy who did American Werewolf in London, like he knows how to do his werewolves, but they did not think it would do well in 2003 when they were making the movie with audiences then. So they cut out all of Rick Baker's stuff for the most part, Um, very little of it still exists and replaced it with big CG werewolves. And so, and that man, those CG werewolves have not aged well. Most of the film I could forgive, but when the CG werewolf shows up, that's where it just it doesn't feel well and it doesn't look very good either. So, yeah. Um. So then once I started researching, apparently in 2018, there was this massive, not massive, like, you know, cursed horror fan size Twitter movement to try to see if fans could get what was supposed to be Craven's original film release. And it was like hashtag release to the Craven cut. And apparently at the time, Patrick Lucier, the editor, said, you know, it it probably will never happen. Like if the footage exists, it's not going to be in a good, you know, quality. It's going to be much like when we finally got the Nightbreed cut that it was, you know, degraded quality and things like that. Um, but yeah, this was it was an and and they had originally apparently shot the film to BR, but when they finally released it, they cut it down to PG 13. Like there was just a lot of big production problems on this. And so, yeah, it was an interesting rewatch just because you can kind of see a core of Craven and Kevin Williamson because it's written by Kevin Williamson, the guy who did Scream in there. And you can really feel a bit of both of them, but then it just feels kind of lost in, in this production mess. Well, and why take the power away from somebody like with the name Craven attached to it, somebody who has proven time and time again that they can reinvent the genre and make great movies. You take that away from them. You, yes, you keep their name technically on it, but it's not no longer a Wes Craven movie. And how many times in the history of Hollywood has a producer cut been better than a director's version of a film? Probably never. I actually would be curious to know if there's ever been a case, maybe if a director lost their mind on set. But in general, the director's making all these decisions for a reason and a producer, you know, making that. So, you know, this is why like Paul Thomas Anderson, there's so many directors who 
first film or some movie along the way gets tinkered with, screwed with, and they become furious and, you know, it changes their whole career because they have to protect themselves after that. And I think Wes, Wes certainly didn't deserve that at that point. Right. I mean, he's built a career where your name means something to you and you don't want uh, that taken away, which is crazy. Yeah, no, this happens. It's history. Film history is full of directors kind of losing films and then, you know, kind of having to sit there and look at the aftermath. We've talked about plenty of other ones on the show as well over the past, even just within the past couple of years, you know, a lot of times word will kind of leak out about it. But yeah, this one definitely is one of the most famous that kind of had this, uh, this, this kind of convoluted thing happened to it where what ends up getting released just doesn't feel very congruent in any capacity. Yeah, no, I I hope someday we do get to see the full version because I I remember thinking it was interesting. Like there's parts I liked and there'd be sequences you get into, but overall you can't quite connect the whole. A werewolf still flips somebody off at the end of the day. I will watch it for the werewolf flipping somebody off like that in itself was kind of amazing. I love Judy Greer. I'll watch her in everything, anything. Christina Ricci was interesting. Um, Jesse Eisenberg is in it as well. And apparently that was part of it is they were not originally brother and sister in the original version. They are now. It's just I, I look at it and would love to see what could have been, but, you know, we're not going to get that. Did the werewolf have a flashback like Wes Craven's other classic film? Because I feel like dogs having flashbacks is his thing. We could have got this in there. Well, I think that the spoiler has run out on Curse. I am going to say what I found amusing about this one on this watch that I did not connect with the first time is basically everybody turns out to be a werewolf. (laughs) Like you think that you are spending the first act of the film trying to figure out who is the werewolf. There's clearly a werewolf that's attacking people. There's like five Hmm. werewolves in this film. And basically it becomes like, oh, you're one. Oh, you're one. But he's, you know, and it just keeps on going. And soon everybody's a werewolf. But one of them flips off somebody. So there you go. There you go. So maybe it was all worthwhile. (laughs) We got to that. Um, Okay. Well, that was an interesting one. Um, There's one I really like this week that I feel like I've got a list running on Letterboxd since the start of the year, which is the new horror films I've seen this year, trying to rank them. you know, as we get to, the, I think I'm up to about 60 movies and it's been, a, I would say compared to last year, slightly underwhelming. Like I think only the top four or five, I would say w- are likely to be around by the end of the year for me. There's a lot of movies that are just like, yeah, that's fine. Um, but I saw what somebody had written on that list a couple months back saying, make sure you watch Venus. And I was like, yeah, well, that'd be nice if it actually w- had come out and it yeah. hadn't come out, but it came out this week. And um, this is a, a film directed by Juan Balaguerro uh, from Madrid probably um or barcelona uh one of the rec directors um and i've I've followed watched a number of his films over the years uh and and liked a lot of them uh this movie's really fucking fun and this is the film that a lot of people like if you like you know it's not like cobweb but it's like cobweb in the way that you'll you start watching one kind of movie and then it kind of opens another layer to a different slightly different subgenre and it keeps doing that this moves a little faster and a little harder it opens um, kind of like uh, dancing club girl, very, very vibrant kind of scene going on. And she's ripping off the place she works with a bag load of money trying to get out of there. Uh, she gets cut and she has to like find somewhere to hide out with the money. She goes to this massive um, apartment complex, kind of like Evil Dead High Rise. And she goes to see her older sister, who she's completely estranged from, who has a daughter who she's never even met. And there's a lot of tension there. And then you find out 
what's in this apartment complex is much, much worse than what she's hiding from with the crime criminals. So it starts as a crime story. And then you basically goes love complete Lovecraftian cosmic horror. It it feels like Lords of Salem for a lot of it. I'm putting that on my list. Yeah. At the start, it's not like this, but like suddenly I'm watching this movie go, wait, wait now, why am I getting Lords of Salem vibe from the neighbors in this apartment? And then it kind of goes by the end. It also feels a lot like the movie revenge. It almost feels like the character and the kind of her toughness by the end of this movie, which means these are good reference points for me. Like Lords of Salem's revenge. These are good. And, and Lovecraft, uh, you know, and and a little bit three mothers, like the, if it is a little bit like the last film in the trilogy, like it, it has, you'll see why when you get there. I don't want to mm-hmm. say more than that. And there's a couple really cool effect moments and and couple nightmares she has. There's a couple images that are like quite fucked up, like where where you're like, wow, okay, that's a really crazy, what well, probably the craziest image I've seen this year in a horror film. Uh, it's just a lot of fun. It doesn't all hold up under it's one of those horror films, like cobweb similar where it wouldn't all hold up narratively under scrutiny maybe but getting there was super fun i really like this actress esther exposito i think she's pretty famous as a young actress in that country but obviously i i had never heard of her um and i think she's really strong and this this is definitely one of the most fun of the films i've seen this year so far so want to make sure i give that a good plug that's called venus i think it's about you know about five bucks 4.99 on amazon for now maybe it will be coming to shutter or somewhere i'm not sh- i'm not quite sure um oh hereditary as well like it's that thing like lord saintly like somebody something is coming into our world and they're getting ready and that kind of a vibe which i did not expect from the start of this movie at all and really dug it so uh yeah i want to get that one on people's radar I'm going to watch that one tonight. Yeah. That, I think you you'll dig it. Lovecraftian. Yeah, I think you'll dig some of the images around that. I think you're going to be like, oh, that's cool. Excellent. Okay, so I'm going to end with my one that has been really polarizing. Like, I mm. have seen some some not pleasant reviews of this, but honestly, I found it to be really fun. Not scary, but interesting. And this is El Conde, oh. which is on Netflix now. Um, I love this director. Have, I love, I'm a yeah. big fan of his, yeah. Pablo Lorraine. I yeah. don't know how to say his last name properly, but he did Spencer. He did Jackie, like the the kind of big biopics that have come out um, about women over the past two years. He's done two of the big ones. This is very much a funny, very, very dark satire. And that is where it roots itself best. He is a vampire. So there's a very strong horror element to it as well. Like he is a true blood drinking, flying around vampire. There's a whole thing where they liquefy organs now and he drinks them like smoothie. Like it's, it's a full vampiric thing, but it roots itself most in a satirical comedy. Um, So it's more dark comedy than anything else. But that said, it does have some horror moments. So it centers on Augusta Pinochet. The dictator. Who, yeah. <laughs> the dictator. So who this is, is it's a vampire who's been alive for like 250 years. He was like born in the 1700s. And he basically just really loved being in the military. Like he loved kind of being, you know, a rebel rouser, you know, excelling as a general. So it follows him through all of these different wars and armies as he's always kind of fighting on like the dictator side. And then it gets to 
um, Augusta Pinochet, and you find out that he is a vampire and he is now Augusta Pinochet in Chile. And he has decided after 250 years to die once and for all. And one of the things that I found best about this movie is that it gave two fucks about the vampire myth as we know it. So like he goes out in sunlight. He has kids who are human. He has like six kids that are human. He has a human wife. You know, he's around humans. He just is also a vampire and has to drink blood. Um, And so basically the setup is that he is starting to have brain problems, you know, and it goes through something that I've always kind of subconsciously questioned is if you are alive forever, what happens to your brain? Because you think like, the more amount of stuff you put in it, the more convoluted it's going to get. So if you have a thousand years worth of memories, is your brain always like on par or do things start slipping? Do you start like mixing up names and things like that? Like most of us do. Um, Does dementia set in, which is, you know, what happens usually when you get to be of a certain age. Is this a parable for podcasting? Like a parable, this whole movie was just for us having to learn all the VHS titles and director names. Every single, I have to recite so much horror in this No, but it's um, he's 250 and he has decided to go ahead and die. He's decided to end his life and he has gathered his human children together because he wants them to be a part of it. But the problem is he has forgotten all of the places he hid his money. And so his kids basically refuse to let him die until they figure out where all of his different finances are. And then they bring in this financial investigator who they want to kind of follow all of the different trails to see where his money could be. But you soon find out that she's there under a different motive, that she's not who she says she is. And she's been trying to infiltrate this family. The wife is all pissed off. He's got a human wife who's very pissed off that he never made her a vampire. The kids are just pissed because they can't find dad's money. And he's like, you know, wealthy as hell. And they want that. So the whole thing is very much this dark, dark, very dark comedic satire about the politicians feeding off the poor, the the dictators, the generals feeding off kind of the, the people who don't have the assets to arm themselves so they just can be taken over. And then ultimately the kids, his kids are feeding off him. So it's the whole thing of like, feeding from the nation. He's feeding off the poor. He's feeding off kind of the unequipped, but then his kids are feeding off him. Most of the story, or at least I'll say the first third of it is told through voiceover. And I liked that. Like it made it feel kind of like Tim Burton or Wes Anderson. The whole thing had that quality to it. Like it's not meant to feel believable. It's meant to feel absurdist. It's meant to feel wild, unhinged with these kind of weirdly absurdist moments where they'll be in the middle of a conversation about how he's about to die. And then suddenly this band comes in and starts playing and he stops everything and follows them. And it's just got these wildly absurdist moments. And the filming is really arty. This is not going to be for everyone. And looking online, all I could see was like one star, Hmm. five star. What the fuck is this? This was hilarious. This definitely hit my kind of absurdist satire sensibilities, but yeah. Don't go in expecting it to be like, you know, 30 days of night. This is not that. This is a satire told through vampirism as an allegory. Yeah, somebody wrote a dictator walks home alone. 
Uh, That's kind of <laughs> perfectly it. Uh, so he's what's interesting about him, because all those things, the way you described that movie, are almost in complete opposite of all his other movies. Right. And, and he has a movie that I've been telling, like, I, I actually discovered his first film back when I was working in a video store or before I came to L.A. And it's called Tony Monero. And it is so good. It is it's set in Chile, uh, set in like 1978 or whatever. And it is a guy who goes to discos and stuff. And he is obsessed by Tony Monero from Saturday Night Fever, like obsessed to the point where it's like a psycho movie. Like the guy dances like him, thinks he is him. And then people start challenging him and there's like a murder and it's so intense and weird. It's a really, really good movie. Uh, and then he, and then they use that to make, you know, he made Jackie and things like that. So, mm -hmm. but th those are so different and so hyper-focused on like singular characters. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. I was very curious to see this one, but um, yeah, glad you saw that. Cool. I think you would like it just because of how kind of offbeat it yeah, is. Yeah, I'm curious. Like, I think that that's been part of the struggle is when you see horror pop up on Netflix, it's kind of hit or miss anyway. Um, and then this one does not necessarily feel like a horror film in any capacity. It's just kind of its own creature, but a really fun one in that capacity. Um, all right. My last thing I'm going to talk about is uh, for anyone who doubts my authentic love of the movie we're about to talk about. Uh, the other podcast I do is called Pure Cinema. about five, six years ago. We started the very first episode. At the Vaguely familiar yeah, with it. At the end of the first episode, uh, out of the blue, just off the top of my head, I said to Brian, uh, the 1980s are burning and you get to save one movie and that's it. The rest are gone forever. And yet he came up with something. And I, in that moment, realized the movie I was going to save was Robocop. And that's how much I like Robocop. I've always loved this film since when I saw it when I was young. It really just... It, I mean, beyond the fact that it's a great action film, it's great satire, it's all these things. It just has a really fucking wild side to it. Like, all the blood, all the gore. And mm -hmm. this... So, And I'm not in the bag, surprisingly. I think a lot of people think I'm... Because I'm so, so into movies that I listen to, like, lots of commentaries and stuff. I've listened to about three commentaries in my entire life. There's a, I don't listen to I just don't either. have time. I'd rather watch it. And it's not to say they're not fascinating. It's just not the kind of cinephile I am. And... And I'd always and... want to watch another movie. Yeah, like, that's, that's how I'm I, I want to keep going. No, I'm the exact same way. Like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre one is one of the best things I've ever heard. I remember listening to that was one of the first commentaries I heard and loved it and learned so much about filmmaking. But in general, I don't. And same with making of docs. Like sometimes I like them. Sometimes I just, you know, whatever. This is a five hour, uh, four part uh, series called RoboDoc, the creation of RoboCop. And somebody had asked us to cover this because of our coming guest, but that is not why I'm raving here. When I finished episode one, I was like, okay, this is probably my favorite thing of the year so far mm -hmm. because this was everyone involved, all the big players, not, not side extras saying, what a cool movie this was. We had, this is Peter Weller, who's never really done much about this film, Paul Verhoeven, Nancy Allen, Ronnie Cox, Kurtwood Smith, every angle of this film is explored in depth. And sometimes they say shit like, you know, Oh, Peter Weller was a pussy hound or something. You're just like, oh, okay, they're going to go there. Like, pretty interesting. That, that was my biggest takeaway is this production was had its own issues. Like, there was this oh, yeah. was not like a, a beautiful path of, you know, everybody had kismet and everything was great. Like, like all movies, you know, <laughs> like all, every movie for yeah. the most part has issues. It's just a fact of whether or not they become apparent on screen yeah. or not, like whether or not it becomes that tonal mess like we see in Curse, or does it, you know, somehow still gel together? Yeah. And that's what was amazing is I've always, you know, I watch something like Robocop and I view that like that for me is golden age cinema. Yeah. Like that's when people made movies and it was all artistic integrity and, you know, people weren't.
weren't interfering. And then you watch it and you're like, oh, shit, all types of stuff went wrong here. This was great. But it's a great example of why vision matters, because they're like when I'm watching this, the overarching theme is that no one. A lot of people couldn't stand Verhoeven because he's such such a handful, such a character. But every single person, every turn, calls him a genius. The actors say he's incredible with actors. The special effects, he kept asking more of us. You know, he he. So if you just canned him, you'd have a piece of shit movie. And and instead, they suffer through it, and you have a masterpiece because you yep. let the vision be the vision. And this is one of those movies that, you know, and when you see the doc, it's hilarious because he's always acting out all the CG. He's he's always just giving 100%. And, and the difference is he is this guy coming from a European. Had that been John McTiernan, as good as, you know, Die Hard's coming right after this, what a great director if it, it would have been one note. Robocop yeah. works because somebody brought infused it with this wide-eyed, the image of America and all its bigness and all its crazy uh, marketing and, and politics. And it's just, it is a unique film. And this, this doc really gets to the heart of how things come together through very difficult situations to create yeah. something that lasts. And I, I still have what part, one part to go. I'm going to watch it late tonight. Cause it just came out. These are all available on Screenbox. And mm-hmm. I don't know. It was just, it was just really, it filled my heart up, which I always love that feeling when you're watching something that does such a good job. You know, we were just talking about this last night, um, you and I, after another podcast, we've yeah. done a couple this week. Oh, yeah, you're on the New Beverly how, calendar. Just so yeah, people can I'm listen. on the yeah. New Beverly calendar. But we talked on that about how in the 80s, there was this this blind trust of the director's vision. Yeah. Um, on the 70s, for sure, it. too. Let, yeah. Come from the 70s, yeah. We talked about it in regards to Cronenberg, how even when he went into things like The Fly oh, yeah. and Dead Ringers, that it was just kind of like, let him be weird. Let him do his thing. You know, it's going to come out in the wash. And that is just near impossible to kind of get that on you know, a studio level and even on an independent level anymore that it's just like, it's so much harder because money is so tight and it's just a completely different market with BODs. And I don't think it's because money's, I mean, they they could say that, but I think it's because the trust is just gone because the Mm -hmm. people green lighting the movies are um, much more fiscally conservative and, and don't understand art the way that producers used to understand artists and give them trust to try to make some good things. And look, the fact that we are in a, a year where Oppenheimer is now nearing a billion dollars and the lead the lead actor is not famous in this country. Kelly yeah. Murphy is not a famous actor in this country. He's a he's a supporting actor in this country. And the, oh no, I feel like we you're right. He no, he is. And in England, actor. he's, he's a, lead. Not a leading man. But no, in this country, and for it to get to that part, and then Barbie's already well past that. You have to look at both of those as examples in Barbie had IP, but you have to look at them as examples of okay, that is a sign. That the that there was something in the seventies eighties that uh, was a little more pure in this way, and it'd be really cool if the strike ends and that if they take the right lessons from it, which they won't. Um, <laughs> instead, they'll just remake GI Joe figures. Uh, but if they did, they would see that yeah, it's the creative voices that uh, if they're left to sing and if you trust them, uh, amazing stuff can happen. Not always. A lot of you get for every Robocop, <laughs> you have about a, a hundred really bad uh, cyborg movies, but. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it's it, this one is really worth your time, uh, and also really cool to see. Ro- I I guess in my brain, it's been a long time th- since I've thought about Ronnie Cox, but Ronnie Cox looks younger than Peter Weller now, and Ronnie Cox has been around in my mind since forever. forever. I mean, Deliverance mm-hmm. for Christ's sake, and he looks pretty good, and he's still kicking. I was like, great, good on you. Ronnie. I have to tell my quick Peter Weller story. Just it's very short, but it was just like, a, oh my god, you're Peter Weller. Peter Weller. 
I was covering Sons of Anarchy for Fangoria. And it was just kind of like a broad overview of the special effects. I got to follow around the special effects team. It was these two amazing women for the day um, as they were doing some of the makeup and stuff. And it was the day that they did the burning the body in the pit episode. Of I did Sons see it all. Anarchy. I remember Peter Weller being in it. Yeah. He he was directing. Oh, yeah. Um, was so the team. day I was on set, he was directing and I didn't realize that no one tells you like television, yeah. the directors kind of float in and out. And I remember being on set and I'm just sitting there like sipping a cup of tea. And all of a sudden I'm like, fuck Peter Weller just walked by. Like it was, you know, just such an out of nowhere. <laughs> Did you hear his voice? Was it like another, another shot creep? Or something. He just walked past and it was just like an oh my god, I that That's was so Peter cool. Weller. And then one of the makeup people was like, Yeah, he's directing the episode. I was like, Oh my god, I had no idea. It's so, Buckaroo Banzai. It was wild. Um, but before we move into our amazing next segment with Phil Tippett, quickly I just wanted to go over some of my recent book reads. I have a I've gotten comments like, when are you getting back to graphic novels? I have a stack um that I've been working my way through. I've been kind of going back and forth between books and graphic novels, but the past couple of weeks have definitely been more books. Never Whistle at Night. This is a collection of indigenous horror stories. This one was just released on uh September 19th, which mm. is today when we're taping this. This one, it's got an intro by Stephen Graham Jones. This one's really cool monsters, like horror stories I've never heard before, which is what I'm always looking for is something that's going to make me go, huh, that's a new monster. This is never whistle at night. I've never, you know, these were, these stories felt so fresh, so innovative for me. So it was fun. Um, Handyman Method. This is from Simon and Schuster. This one came out on August 8th. Um, I was expecting to really love this one because it's Nick Cutter who wrote The Deep mm. and The Troop, both of which I love. And then Andrew Sullivan, who has this one I love called The Marigold. It, it was a domestic horror. It was kind of Amityville-ish, but home improvement. And it was gothic-y. There was some weirdness to it. It did have these trippy moments. So I'm going to give this one kind of like it wasn't my favorite of the last two weeks, but there was some good stuff in it. There were these like weird trippy how-to videos that they kept watching that I found pretty fun. Um, and again, I love both of the the writers. So the writing was awesome. It was just a little, um, you know, it was p- family renovating or not renovating. They had moved into this brand new kind of community and shit starts going wrong. And you realize that there's something seeping into the house and it kind of goes uh, deeper into their own kind of domestic connections and yeah, things like that. There's a lot of goo in it too, which was fun. And the one that I really dug this week was called Stranger Upstairs by Lisa Maitland. And this one came out on September 12th from Bantam Books, which is an imprint of Random House, I believe. Um, And so, yeah, this one was fun. And honestly, reading the back cover of this, it sounded like a book that I would not dig. And I ended up loving it and reading it in like three days. Like I binge read this one. It's about an influencer who buys a murder house. She basically buys like the Amityville horror house with the intention of renovating it. Another home renovation book. This is a theme. Um, she is a self-help writer and kind of an online self-help guru buys this murder house called the Blackwood house where a guy took a shotgun and, or a hammer and killed his entire family. She moves in, starts the renovation processes. The entire community hates her because they hate the notoriety that it gives that neighborhood. So they just want to like tear the thing down. They're so pissed off that somebody has purchased it because it means that it's just going to continue. Like no matter how many coats of paint you throw on or how much tile you pull up, it is still the murder house. 
And she herself is really despicable. Like usually if it's a bad character, like she's doing bad things and she's a bad person, you don't necessarily want to follow. But honestly, in this, it was fun. She is despicable and there is something really fun about that. And then, of course, as she's in there starting the renovation process, spooky shit starts happening. Plus, she's got all these neighbors that are trying to get her to leave. So it adds this extra layer. I liked where this went. It didn't have the most, you know, convoluted, well-constructed ending. It was just kind of like an ending. But that said, I liked the ride this one took me on. So this is The Stranger Upstairs by Lisa Maitland. All right. Okay. And with that, let's hear from a couple more sponsors and then let's bring on Phil Tippett. Yes. The man who created Ed 209 for Robocop. We won't be talking about that because that's in the documentary, but that's why he's here. Tonight's episode is also brought to you by Seat to the Game. Have you heard the story of the Millhaven Massacre? In 1979, a chilling occult ritual claimed the lives of a once-renowned family at the Millhaven Asylum. The lone survivor was a young boy who vanished while in custody. Since then, the crime remained unsolved, leaving only whispers of the horror behind. No one came close to uncovering what happened that night. That was until the Truth Seekers Anonymous dared to unravel what lies hidden at Millhaven Asylum. Thanks to the Truth Seekers, you and your friends are now pawns in the Game Master's sinister ritual of deceit. Band together, decipher allies from foes, find a way to escape, but you have to work quickly if you want to make it out alive. Deceit 2 is now available on Steam, where trust is fragile and every choice could be your last. Will you emerge victorious or become yet another victim of the ritual of deceit? Tonight's Colors of the Dark is also brought to you by Final Girl, a new horror board game. Ever wonder what it would be like to be the star in a horror movie? Well, now you can be. In Final Girl, the critically acclaimed single-player horror board game, you are the final girl and it is kill or be killed. Grab a core box and at least one feature film box containing a killer and a location and you are ready to play. And about an hour later, you'll feel like you just watched an incredible horror movie with all the twists and turns that go with it. Perhaps best of all, no two games will ever be the same. With over a hundred possible killer and location combinations, you'll always have a new story waiting for you. Are you the final girl? Final Girl is published by Van Ryder Games and is available at Barnes & Noble, your friendly local game store, or online at vanridergames.com. Hello and welcome back to Colors of the Dark. Thank you to all of our sponsors that you just heard from. We have wanted to have this person on the show for literally like a decade. It is our honor tonight to welcome Phil Tippett to the show. How are you doing tonight, Phil? Very well. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here with us. We just watched the new exciting RoboCop documentary, which is absolutely amazing. And it's so cool to see you in there talking about everything. Creating, yeah, great, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So, I'd love to kind of jump back to the very beginning because obviously you've done so much amazing work in your lifetime. But I would love to know kind of what was the first thing that was your spark that like made you say, This is what I want to do for a living? Well, the ball started to roll when I was about five years old, um, in like around 1955 or so. Uh, was King Kong was on television and um, someone had just turned it on. I had no idea what I was looking at and the screen was really little. And um, yeah, that's what's began my fascination with dinosaurs for sure. 
but then the uh, the movie that really zapped me was uh, Ray Harryhausen's The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad in 1958. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was never the same since. What do you think? So, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Well, I, I was just curious that? about what do you think? The I mean, I don't know if you've even given it thought over all these years, but what do you think the quality that mesmerizes us about stop motion, especially at an early age? Because funnily enough, you know, I was four years old, five years old seeing Star Wars, and it was actually the chessboard that did had a similar effect to me because I knew it didn't look like the other stuff. And it looked like there's a little bit of magic happening on the screen you know, with the characters moving and the way they move and it's just not the same as you know obviously regular motion what did you ever have you ever gone deep into trying to figure out what it is the draw to seeing it that way uh you know ray ex- expressed it as like a a surreal kind of a thing you know it was the uh at its inception was uh a cross between a new technology motion pictures mm. and uh you know, artists being and filmmakers being able to, you know, realize immediately that there's a lot of things that you could do with puppets in animation. And then you could have complete control. You didn't have to wait for actors, you know, or deal with their antics or, (laughs) you know, you were just in your own, you know, Garrett making this stuff, you know, and it has another worldly, um, it looks like it's conjured out of something, mm. you know, by an alchemist. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't understand what it was when I first saw it. And, you know, my dad said, well, it's something like cartoon animation only with models, which, you know, okay. <laughs> uh, but it wasn't until um, much later that I discovered um Famous Monsters, that was a magazine mm-hmm. that was edited by Forey Ackerman. And Forey was a friend of Ray's, and so he would publish articles on him with pictures and whatnot. And so that, that's where I really began to like, oh, okay. Yeah, how do you so learn what, that? Sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was my next question, actually, is how did you start learning it? Was it just messing around on your own, learning how to do it? Or was there somebody who you were kind of fostered under? on my own you know i mowed lawns and i got an eight millimeter single frame camera and you know um then we didn't have the technology that was available today you know where your learning curve you know was you know relatively quickly but you know it took me three months to to get through um eight millimeter roll and um then i had to send it back to rochester new york to get processed and then two weeks later it would come back it was kind of like attempting to learn how to play a piano and not hearing it for two weeks Mm. and then going back and trying to what the fuck (laughs) you know so what was the first like motion picture that you were on where it wasn't just you and, you know, kind of making it on your own that you were actually creating something where it was like, Holy shit. Like I'm, I'm on a movie right now. There were a couple of things. I don't know which came first. You know, one was John Davison and Joe Dante's piranha. Yeah. And, you know, um, 
they didn't know how many pictures they were really going to make and but they're big fans of stop motion mm-hmm. and so you know they you know i was able to do a handful of shots there and then around the time of star wars i, I was working on stuff for star wars and uh the Crater Lake Monster was a stop-motion character, which is kind of like an amphibious dinosaur. So I made that, and I was working uh, for Dave Allen, who who had the entire job, and would do a few shots for him. So, uh, and then of course, Star, you know, the, the Star Wars and the chess set, and the cantina, and all that. Yeah. Do you get a sense yeah. of something special? I mean, I, again, when you're working on any movie, you're at the starting point of something. It's not a it hasn't been sequelized. It isn't a blockbuster yet. But especially something at the early stages, something like Star Wars. Did you get a sense that creatively there was some special thing happening there with so many artists and so many different types of art being used for it? Well, we came in at the very, very end, mm. and. Um, and did the cantina, George screened the cantina, seeing the material that he had, and he wasn't happy with it. So, you know, he hired, um, you know, Rick Baker, and Rick was working on another project um, that he's sorry <laughs> that he worked on instead of Star Wars, <laughs> but he got a lot more money. It was the Incredible Melting Man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Same mm-hmm. that one, yeah. Yep. So he hired, um, you know, four stop motion animators that were his friends. And um, so he, George said, can, you know, you make as many, you know, aliens as, as you can in six weeks. And so we did. And then we went on to a, the insert stage on um, La Brea and Carol Ballard was the DP. And we got into the costumes and we acted ish and um while we were doing constructing the cantina stuff uh george would come by every week and check our progress and he saw that i had a stop motion puppet that um i had made you know years earlier when it was like whatever you know 17 18 at that time Michael Crichton had just come out with Westworld. I mean, Future World. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. the sequel. And in that, there's a, a hologram scene with knights in armor on horses on a chessboard. And uh, what George was originally going to do was you just take the masks and have that be, you know, those characters that would be composited in the shot. And then he saw my puppet and he went like, ba-bang, um, can I have this, you know, in my movie? And yeah, sure. Then he said, could you make me 10 aliens, stop motion aliens in a couple of weeks? And uh, John Berg and I did, and went to ILM and Dennis Murin set up the shot. And we spent a couple of nights right at the end of the schedule. The crew, you know, we had these black flats that we were in. The crew was uh, having the wrap party. And they were all hooting and hollering, getting drunk, you know, <laughs> right, right next to us. And you guys are still working like crazy to get it done. 
<laughs> you don't work like crazy doing that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like watching grass grow. Oh my God. So for that, like that single chess scene in Star Wars, like mm-hmm. how long did it take to do something like that? Two like nights. that's two nights. Oh, yeah. that's so meticulous. Yeah. Wow. Two weeks of building and two nights to shoot. Oh my goodness. So um, you obviously had uh, some major, major stuff during the 1980s, but I'm intrigued when you started doing some more like bringing in the computer technology, like when you got into the Jurassic Park years, how had you ever learned to kind of do this stuff on computer or were you guys kind of creating the programs and, and kind of creating it as you go? Because that seems so cutting edge at the time period. Hell no. You know, I, I am a technological imbecile. <laughs> I am, I'm you know, 150% analog guy. And um, so I really had no interest in um, learning how to work on a computer. Um, but at that time, my skills were needed in a different direction because I knew a shitload about dinosaurs and uh, I knew the production process. And so it was like a new no-brainer for that. Yeah. How did that dinosaur excuse me knowledge come about you've obviously done a lot of dinosaur movies has this like was it a side passion of just researching dinosaurs or did this all kind of come out of various projects well it sprung from king kong you know when i was five years old and um you know that set me on a course i was just fascinated you know as i grew older you know i just you know tried to learn everything i could and have my parents drop me you know in going to school you know in san diego there was nobody that was interested in what i was interested in so i just spent my time by myself you know learning how to animate and then you know my parents would drop me off at the library for the weekends and i just spend the weekends you know with like index cards going through all their books and writing things down and learning about all the you know geological epochs and epochs or whatever and um yeah so that's amazing did you do the same kind of thing for your bug research for starship troopers because i think that was when we first noticed it on a big scale just seeing so many effects at once and still being believable, which is not what we often think when we see uh, massive attacks in, in movies nowadays. So much CG just takes over now. Well, there are two different animals. I mean, the dinosaurs were evolved over, you know, 100 million years, mm. you know. And so the skeletons just tell you what to do. I mean, you need to estimate their, you know, water weight and... and um, but it's basically just a turnkey thing. You know, mm-hmm. you just wind it up and, you know, the bones tell you what to do. The arachnids um, were just fanciful things, you know, so you just have to figure out what looks good. Mm. They moved so well, though. Like, I'm intrigued. Like, were you researching bug movement? Because it's always in the movement that I lose something. We, we would, um, at dailies, you know, run, like, documentaries of bugs and insects. But it was a pain in the ass for me, and so was Jurassic Park, because the animators just didn't have the skill level that you needed. And so what I, I did was I had... Uh, some stop motion models, some rubber models that were articulated that was based off the you know, the um, 
Stan Winston designs. He did these mm. maquettes before they built the big things. And I gave them to the animators and um, or I, I took them and I, I posed them. It should be like this. It should be like that. just like that. Then they would block out a scene and it was shot. And it was like, oh my God. And um, so I put up a animation peg bar, you know, on the uh, Avid and, you know, put a animation cell on that. And then I would meticulously draw out this blocking that was completely fucked up and, you know, would just go like this nose, you know, the, you know, the front part of the dinosaur would move this far and I'd put like, you know, with a Sharpie on that. And then it would go like this, you know, and get a smaller pin. And it was like, it starts like that. And then that, like that. And there's those three frames are the same. And then this one gets bigger and this one gets bigger and this one gets bigger. And then that one gets smaller and that one gets smaller. And that's it. And it was like for every fucking oh. thing, you know, and I just hate micromanaging, you know, but, um, what else was I to do? <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh, that seems so meticulous. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. What sets Paul uh, Verhoeven apart? Because you've worked a number of times and obviously, you know, watching the behind the scenes, I've always thought just satirically and just his dark sense of humor always shine through. But uh, having worked, especially with Starship, where you guys had to work really closely because of such a complex, what sets him apart from other directors you've worked with? He's an artist. Hmm. Um, you know, as defined against commercial artists, you know, and, and George and Steven are, you know, very aware of their audiences, you know, and are aiming for them. And, you know, when Paul's been asked before who he makes his movies for, he says, I make them for me, mm. you know, like an artist. And certainly he, you know, hopes that, you know, they make money. But if they don't, you know, he made the movie he wanted to make, you know. That kind of segues in a sense to, you know, you, you are creating art all these years for films. You're in service of the design of something else for a director or for somebody's vision that you're adding to. And then at what point did when you when did you first start working on Mad God? Something that it seems more in that line where you're it, it feels like something that was made for you. Essentially. It's such you can see that it is somebody's brain baby, that this is a purely organic concept that came out of somebody's cerebellum. So, yeah. Yeah, well, I had been working for years on trying to develop a, a puppet film. And, um, you know, they just were too, um, I don't know cute that's not the right word because they were they were they were dark um but my brain you know just started to percolate in the like mid 80s and, and turned in a different direction based on you know the material i was reading like freud and young and you know art history and more geology and whatnot anything i could get my hands on to feed my brain and this thing just appeared as a vision, hmm. you know, I mean, literally. And the whole thing was, you know, get into it a bit, but like a spiritual journey, hmm. you know. Um, um, are you aware of uh, Carl Jung's The Red Book? 
I don't know that I've one. read a lot no. of Carl Jung, but I haven't read the Red Book. It's this huge volume, hmm. and it's a very beautiful book. But we went down the same path, and you give yourself to the vision, and that changes you. I mean, oh. literally changes you, you know, because you it, it's the hero's journey, really. You know, uh, uh, in terms of, you know, the, you you know, you go down a path that leads to a path that leads to a gate. And then there's a talking crow that tells you to go left and a talking, you know, wolf that you follow through a tunnel and blah, 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 (laughs) blah, blah. Um, You know, as you go through this, you know, adventure and you pretty much hit the same beats as um, Campbell. You know, in the hero's journey, and okay, I now that you said that, it makes like the inner circle and the inner inner sanctum. It it's all okay. Now I have to go back and rewatch it, keeping that in mind that it follows that beat by beat. The movie doesn't, yeah. You know, but um, my journey did. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, and and similar thing happened to me that happened to Young which he spent 16 years in secret writing this thing. And um, like me, it changed him to the extent that it kind of drove him cuckoo. (laughs) And um, I like to imagine that, uh, that, you know, his family realized what was going on. And I like to imagine that they sent him to a psychiatrist. That would be a good (laughs) move. Um. So a Freudian, uh, a Freudian psychologist, of course. Freudian, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And after RoboCop, I, I had a crew, and well, I had written about tw- a twelve-page outline that was more like kind of a poem. It was written on a typewriter, <laughs> and uh, again, this thing was almost like I had been touched by something you know some other force because it like i saw it right there so after robocop 2 i um shot about six minutes and realized that the scope of the thing was too big and lost the crew and uh so for the next 20 years i um i have no idea why you know but in general i'm very objective oriented and get on things like Ileana Ape. I I just kept developing tons of storyboards and designs and you know studying more you know Freud and Jung and whatnot. And miraculously, about twelve years ago, I was able to accumulate you know a bunch of volunteers to work on it that allowed me that wanted to reboot it and. Because they had no idea I, I was archiving it. They thought it was some old lost Czechoslovakian <laughs> from the 40s. They were the guys that uh, grew up watching the Star Wars and RoboCop documentaries, you know, and they wanted to work with, you know, stop motion models and sets and lights. And then they didn't, you know, that bus had left the station and they were, you know, computer graphics artists that mm-hmm. were working for me. They wanted to do a shot, and I, I had still had some of the puppets. I had the assassin puppets, and they uh, did the shot where he's going down the stairs with his his light, 
it was just one thing led to the next and it kind of snowballed and I'd give talks around town and got, you know, um, high school and college volunteers or volunteers from everywhere. And then on the, uh, during the week, I would come up with processes, you know, you do this, this, this. Um, so they did a lot of the heavy lifting, you know, over a long period of time. Yeah, and and so they were people that were interested in this stuff. So I was able to mentor them and show show them what to do. But in, in some cases, it was like giving razor blades to four year olds. You know, <laughs> it was just like, don't go near the bandsaw. Okay? <laughs> and even if there was a problem with exacto knives, you know, it's just and so um, yeah. 12 years later, I really started to disintegrate, mm. you know, and you hear these stories of like Beethoven and these other artists that end up looking like homeless people, mm. really, you know, all my, I just didn't care myself. I was like in a different universe and, um, you know, my clothes were all, I wouldn't take showers, my beard and hair were really long. My clothes were all, you know, ripped. I had, um, you know, scabs all over my hands and um, and arms, you know, from, you know, making up sets. I'm bipolar and uh, unipolar, so I don't get depressed unless, you know, my dog gets run over. But it, it's my superpower. And I, I just don't stop once mm. I get going. And... I can work like easily 10 or 12 hours a day. And then I'm, I, you know, exhausted and just drop in front of the TV, but I, you know, couldn't took my mind off. Mm -hmm. So I self-medicated with alcohol. And I mean, I just turned into this thing. And um, while I was, you know, working on it, I, I discovered myself through what I was doing. It was like, Hey, this is, I don't know about my <laughs> behavior. And, um, and uh, so I, I looked up um, bipolar and consulted a psychiatrist and then she gave me medication and, you know, then things were a lot better, but it took me months to recover from doing mad God. Mm. You know, I mean, it really zapped my brain. And, you know, like I said, um, I had a vision. I mean, it really was, you know, a spiritual journey to the extent that I just saw the whole of this thing. When I was, you know, it was rebooting. I took a lot of storyboards that I had drawn and um, the six minutes that I had and just you know, put together, edited like about 10 minutes of what the thing could be. And that was just to show the, the crew, this is kind of what it's like. And then I forgot about it. And when, you know, I started doing interviews and for, you know, some documentaries, we pulled out this thing and everything was there in that 10 minutes, you know, it was, it was the movie. 
So I, I knew exactly where I was going. I was like guided by the North Star or something. How did that feel then? Because it's so personal, it's so internal for so long in your head when you finally put that up on a screen with your first audience to watch it with them. What was that experience compared to all the other experiences you'd had on other films? Oh, night and day. Mm, yeah. <laughs> the other films, it was like a day job, you yeah. know? But I was really lucky through my my friend Alex Cox. Um, oh, yeah, he's in the film, yeah. He's yeah. in the film. Yeah. Uh, I, I met um, the composer Dan Wool and Richard Beggs, who's a very famous sound designer. I'm amazed, you know, wanted to work on the film. And, um, you know, I'd go once, you know, Richard had something to hear. You know, I, I would look at the thing. It was a totally different movie. You know, it, it, I just yeah. was totally amazed. When I worked with Dan, most of the Dan's work that he had done for Alex was very Marconi-esque. Mm. Um, uh, Alex was doing a lot of Western stuff. So I, I didn't know what his range was. And so I showed him the first six minutes of that God. And then I would do like, you know, from time to time, like you know, high eight videos that were like collages. You know, there would just be anything that would be interesting, like the um, compost heap that's crawling with worms and speed that up. Or when my kids, I'm working on something and my kids come in, you know, I and they're not on screen, they would, you know, like ask me a question. And I, uh, the soundtrack was uh, AM radio, which I had to go looking for. <laughs> and I would just take the dial and wind it back and forth. And that was the soundtrack. And, you know, Dan and I were on the totally the same wavelength because what I didn't know was that his thing was ambient music. Mm. And so the idea of working in an artistic realm, um, you know, we, we were pretty much had the Vulcan mind meld thing mm. going. And what I did not want to do was have like a temp track, like you do in a normal movie when yep. it's being made. And, um, you know, that's the result of a production process and time and, and whatnot. And, and so you cut to that. And then the composer comes in. And I thought that was like, you know, I understood the, the necessity for doing it that way, but I didn't want to work that way. And uh, so with the, the six minutes and the few storyboards I had, I asked Dan to, uh, you know, see what he could come up with. Uh, because what I wanted to do was have the, the score evolve with the movie. And so they would inform each other. So as we were building the thing, you know, he had like six minutes worth of material and Ken Rogerson, you know, the editor and me, or Ken would just take that six minutes and flop it and have it go backwards and cut it up and speed it up and slow it down. And then, you know, slowly as we you know, actually built the thing, um, you know, going back and forth, I really wanted Dan's tone and feeling to be integrated into the picture. And that's how we worked. Mm. 
could you having survived it could you do it again (laughs) could you make another film in that way yeah actually that was my (laughs) next question is i've heard that there might be some type of quasi follow-up that you're working on yeah but i i i could never do anything like that Mm. again uh but i am working on a quasi sequel to mad god Mm. you know can you give us any details about it uh the backbone of the story that I took, I mean, it took me two or three years of like knocking my head against the wall to try and get my head around this. And somehow I ran across uh, a book that I had that I was um, very informative for me for Mad God, which was Dante's Inferno. Mm-hmm. And so it's essentially that it's like uh, going through the nine rings of hell. And, um, but, you know, when Dante wrote his, you know, he kind of rubbed the wrong people, the right, you know, people the wrong way and had to get the hell out of Dodge. (laughs) And um, so I'm doing the same thing. You know, I'm using everybody I hate (laughs) and, um, you know, certainly Donald Trump figures <laughs> you know, very well into in, into this, mm-hmm. and so it, it's um, it's uh, hell, purgatory, and the Garden of Eden and heaven. Oh, that is cool. Um, I I want to note that purely from like a creative standpoint, fifteen years from when you kind of first had that vision to when you were you know kind of seeing it on screen. Did anything in that vision change? Or oh, it was thirty years. Thirty. Oh, yes. So over that time, like, did any elements change, or did it? You know, what came out look exactly like you had foreseen it? No. As I built yeah. it, I designed it in such a way that um, I had gates integrated into it, so that I could open it up at, at any point. And, and go into another, you know, take another path. And um, and so when I got it up to like 40 minutes, it was like, you know, let's go for it. You know, mm-hmm. let's turn it into a feature. And, you know, I could, you know, pretty seamlessly, you know, um, you know, while I was doing it, you know, there's like, there's it's like 12 years, you know, so it gives me pl- plenty of time to, you know, I, I live by post-its, you know, mm-hmm. I'm mean, like totally analog and ideas just come to me out of nowhere. And, and so, uh, you know, I just continue to, to, to develop it that way. From the, the, like the early inspiration you talked about with uh, King Kong and, you know, it's always obvious those early influences, but, but like, since you've been working professionally, are there other artists uh, you know your your Sfunkmeyers or brothers quay or other people out there whose work has continued to fuel you know your inspiration for what you do or uh, other well the major figure was carl zeman hmm. you know and the way he approached the filmmaking which was kind of very ballsy and very artistic and um uh, just magical you mm-hmm. know Hundred percent. So, as you are kind of looking to keep going with Mad God, like, will it be the same characters, or are you kind of starting fresh with it? Yeah, there'll be uh, the two lead characters are um, the alchemist. The, yeah. yeah, 
and the nurse. Nice. How? Um, go oh, ahead. Oh, I was just curious from because I've never seen this done like actually on person. I've seen a couple of live animation shows or stop animation shows, but like when you're actually constructing them, like how big is the alchemist how, or the the assassin? Like how big are these? Well, the assassin is yeah. one six scale, you know, um, like the size of GI Joe. And that was intentional in that um, I could um, buy costumes. I didn't Mm -hmm. have to make the costumes. So, um, yeah. Where on earth did you find those costumes? (laughs) Like that is that. that I just went to like Ken and Barbie. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. The, the alchemist was um, of guy in a suit. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That was shot high speed. I know we talked about it off air, but uh, I really loved the episode you were involved with in Poker Face this year. It just, yeah. it, you know, it, it ticked a lot of my favorite things in movies, creature designers and murder mystery. And Nick Nolte was perfectly cast. Uh, how'd that come about? And, and how much input did you get to do creatively in the actual storyline? Because it felt, it felt like it had a lot of inside knowledge. Well, it was, you know, Ryan and I have been friends for quite some time. You know, he was here doing, you know, one of the Star Wars shows. And he was like a big fan of of stop motion. And so he just wanted to have, um, there were these mythological characters, you know, the Cyclops and the um, Cerberus. and, um, And so he said, do whatever you want to do. And so uh, we did. <laughs> and, you know, he said, I, I you know, he, he never frame fucked the thing. Mm. He just said, give me it and I'll use it and cut it in. Did Nolte have to study you and follow up to get into the mind oh, of the you know what happened maker? <laughs> was, was they sent him some documentaries on me. Oh. And what had happened was... Um, somebody his agent or his wife you know he was just like a wild man he looked like i did at the end (laughs) of that god um cleaned him up a bit and he goes like why did i shave my beard off and cut my hair (laughs) and when he went on the set you know it was like Well, that's great for so, people who haven't seen it. They should really need to check it out. It's- yeah, yeah. I, I went, I, I went uh, on the set for a few days, and um, oh god, my brain. Who's the actress? Natasha. Um, Natasha. Yeah. Right, and we really hit it off. Um, I went um, to get lunch and. You know, the crew was younger, and I didn't want to have to answer any questions about Star Wars. <laughs> and so I just went back to the set with my lunch, and Natasha was there. And we got into this great philosophical conversation, you know, for about an hour. And our paths were very similar, mm-hmm. you know. Um, that was that was really meaningful. I'm excited it got renewed for a second season. I need the strike to end so, you know, it can get to work. But yeah, (laughs) we all need that strike to end. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Oh, it's going to transform the whole racket. Yeah. 
Um, so before we let you go for the evening, what have you been watching or reading recently that has really been inspiring for you, knowing that you're a reader, you dig philosophy? Like, what have you been watching or reading lately? Uh, a Chinese author, uh, author Dorothy um, C. T. S. E. And um, I'm gonna have to go get it. Oh, I, I'm just googling Dorothy Z, and this is yeah. awesome. I mean, if somebody makes the rancor, they're allowed to go and find a book. Yeah, they can go <laughs> find a book. It's totally allowed. The rancor and messed that- me up enough as a kid that I think this is fun. Oh, Leonora Carrington, hmm. who is a very terrific artist and and really interesting story who you know orbited or you know was part of the surrealist movement and so uh dorothy at sea and um and uh carrington is what i've been reading great answers because i have not heard of either of those and now they're going on my list so yeah thank you so much for that thank you so much for talking with us and sharing your amazing story and as soon as you get any type of follow-up to mad god we're gonna have you back on because i need to hear more about it well it may be when you're like 80 years old (laughs) i mean that was that was the thing about mad god i could not have made the film until i was 60 years old Mm. You know, I, I just was not mature enough. You know, I didn't. Um, my wife was um, in the editorial department in the Amadeus. Yeah. You know, so we'd go out to dinner and drinks with uh, Milos Foreman. And as a young filmmaker, I would ask, you know, you know, if he had any advice. And he gave me the best advice, advice ever, which was, if you want to take a good shit, you have to eat well. <laughs> and it was like more time you have to develop something you know Mm. the better it's going to be and i certainly took my time i think that's beautiful because so much of hollywood is about you know it's a young person's game or you're going to age out and things like that and the idea that you have to be older and more mature to firmly grasp you know a particular art form that's it's beautiful it's reaffirming yeah well that's why you know very many directors are you know you just keep working, you know, mm-hmm. until they're at a ripe age. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. This has been absolutely awesome. And everybody, please check out the Robocop 2 documentary on Screenbox. Elric and I have been totally digging it. It's just great. Um, we will be back in two weeks where we will kind of be digging into our spooky season from there. Thank you so much to our sponsors. And please check us out on our Patreon show, Deep Cut. Thanks, everybody. Okay, bye. Thanks so much, Phil. Thanks, sure. Phil. My pleasure. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soff of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. 